Welcome to Citizen Talk, the show that's restoring prudence to politics. I'm Juan Davalos. And I'm Lynette Grunvig, and this is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. And you can also hear us on SoundCloud or iTunes, and maybe even check us out on YouTube now that that's we have right. video. And as you can see, we're still in lockdown, so we're not on studio. That's why our sound is not the best. Uh, but uh, Lynette's in Colorado, and I'm here in Hillsdale. Uh, and today our guest with us is also here in Hillsdale, but uh, unfortunately <laughs> because of our uh, wonderful governor, we're unable to be together. Uh, <laughs> our guest today is Dr. Kevin Porteous. He teaches politics at uh, the Van Andel Graduate School of Statesmanship for Hillsdale College and also for the Hillsdale undergrads. Welcome to the show, Dr. Porteous. Thank you for having me back. Um, so uh, you wrote first a Facebook post that was uh, very interesting and, and it actually uh, got a lot of traction and then you wrote an article uh, to follow up on, on basically the constitutional issues surrounding everything that's going on. And I think there's a lot of confusion. Um, the, I, I had a friend that called the virus a, a clarifying agent because <laughs> uh, it has brought up a lot of the problems that we have in understanding the difference between the federal government, the state governments, and actually what authority do they, do they actually have, especially the, the federal government to do the things uh, that they're doing and what authority the states have to do the things uh, that they're doing. So uh, we were wondering if you could take us through some of those constitutional issues um, and kind of help us understand the, the difference between them. Sure, I mean, I, I think that just in terms of, of the, the sort of politics of, of coronavirus, it's, it's been, yeah, clarifying agent is, is not bad because it's, it's brought some things to the fore that um, we're not used to thinking about. And, and I think what I mean by that initially is that amusingly, um, liberals all over the country have suddenly rediscovered the virtues of federalism. Uh, every, every time, uh, Every time Trump says something like, I have total authority, all of a sudden there's instant pushback from all of these people who a month ago wanted to use the federal government to do everything they could imagine. And now suddenly, suddenly everything has to be done at the states, right? The states are the place. And, and so there's a, it's like watching what happens with the two parties when, when their majority switches in the Senate and how they view the filibuster. All of a sudden, the, the, the party that's now out of power rediscovers the virtues of the filibuster. Uh, I think on the other side, though, there's there's a lot of there, there's a lot of conservatives who have elevated federalism as as a from, from beyond being a prudential constitutional doctrine to being a principle of justice into and of itself. Mm. That, that is to say that that uh, there's we're so used to being abused by the federal government that we see states as as these great bastions of our rights and this is where we're going to be protected and so on and and i think that if you if you look at american history and i don't want to sort of rehash too much of of what i wrote but uh that's not really the case historically that the states haven't on the whole i would say the states have not necessarily been any better at protecting people's constitutional rights than the federal government uh, that, that they, they've proven throughout American history that they're very capable of abusing people's rights. And, and in fact, we have specific provisions in the Constitution that are, that are meant to prevent that, uh, both in the Constitution and the amendments. So, you know, the, the key one, I think, is the 14th Amendment, right? So that uh, the 14th Amendment was passed in the aftermath of the Civil War. It's one of the Civil War amendments. And its express purpose 
was to allow the federal government to intervene in the internal affairs of a state when that state government was not securing the rights of its citizens. And specifically in that context, it meant the freedmen. But the, but, the, but the language is general, and it's not directed specifically towards um, freed slaves. It's, it's, meant, it's meant generally. Now, uh, so th that brings up the question, uh, for me at least, that, okay, so suppose that the states are violating people's rights by taking measures that would be unconstitutional, like uh, preventing, here, here in Michigan at least, preventing people that own a different home in another part of the state from going to that other residence uh, because some, somehow that protects their life. Um, so if the states would be doing that, then what is the role uh, of the federal government to help ensure those rights of, of people? Right. I mean, that's, um, if you look at the way, if you look at the way the 14th amendment was used, uh, especially initially, um, the, the, uh, Congress during Reconstruction passed a series of, of legislation, things like civil rights laws, uh, that, that were designed to guarantee to, uh, to the citizens of the states uh, protection against state interference in their rights. And, and that, was the, uh, that was the primary vehicle by which that was going to be accomplished. And in fact, the 14th Amendment says that at the very end. It says, Congress shall have power to enforce this amendment by appropriate legislation. So the, the Congress would intervene uh, or, or could and did intervene in order to try and overrule state governments. Now, it was difficult and there was opposition and, it, you know, in, in practice, there were, there were problems of implementation. But that was the, that was the theory. That's the way they, 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 that's what they wanted to see happen. How do you respond to people? Uh, sorry, Lena, just last question. Oh, yeah. how, do you <laughs> how do you respond to the argument that people make that, well, but uh, the, you know, the primary role of government would be to protect people's lives and this virus is killing people. Therefore, they have to do whatever it takes to stop the virus from killing people. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, yes. Right to life is important. But, you know, right to life for the people who wrote the Constitution and those amendments also existed in the context of a, of a larger panoply of rights, including, uh, including liberty. And if, if you take a look at sort of founding era documents, um, what they recognized was that without liberty, not only was night, life not really worth living, um, life was not secure. Locke says, I was just looking this up yesterday in, in, in Locke's second treatise. He says, look, the person who can get my property in my power can get my liberty in my power, in his power. And the person who can get my liberty in his power can take my life. And we should assume that anyone who would attempt to get one of those quote unquote lesser rights into, into their own power is doing so, um, is doing so for a nefarious purpose or, or to, you know, and in this case, we can say, well, yes, they're attempting to protect our lives, but, but right, at, at, what, at what collateral cost, I think is the way that they would, is the way that they would look at it. Yeah, it's interesting. You you hear a lot of news right now that this is a, the coronavirus has especially affected um, Black communities, and they're they're generally at least polling seems to show in favor of the shutdowns in part because of that I think. But it does seem a little strange to promote that argument when you realize that the government 
is the one that in many ways has hurt black communities the most throughout the course of US history, I think. And so it is a strange thing to me that, that you would promote this great government control without thinking about future consequences. And, and I wonder what you think maybe future consequences of this are. Does this grow government to such a degree that it's hard to ever bring it back to a reason? Well, I mean, look at, look at the rhetoric that our politicians are using with, with regard to coronavirus. I, I just saw uh, a clip where our own, uh, our, our own very esteemed governor here in Michigan uh, was, was saying that this was, this, was, this was like World War II, uh, you know, com comparing it to a war. And what that means is massive expansion of state power. Now, traditionally, at least up until World War II, when we fought a war, yes, we built up the government. Now, you can see that the Civil War, the First World War, but it's also the case that when the war ended, the, uh, the power was, was the, the institutions and, the, and the, the, the laws were disassembled. This is something that progressives had to watch during the 1920s in horror, as all of the accomplishments of Wilson's wartime government, many of them anyway, were taken apart. Uh, by Harding and Coolidge and the Republican Congresses under them. Within a few years of the end of the Civil War, about all you were left with was veterans' pensions in the Freedmen's Bureau. There wasn't very much left of the wartime infrastructure. But beginning with World War II, that stopped being the case. And I think that was intentional. Right? I think Franklin Roosevelt wanted to ensure that, that the administrative apparatus he built up was not disassembled. Now, so, so you have that, and, and, and so we've been consistently building on that state power, at least since then, but using various crises as vehicles for doing that. But it's also the case that at the same time, the kinds of things we're classifying as wars have become increasingly vague, right? So, you know, if you're Abraham Lincoln and, and it's the 1860s, you can define with, with tolerable clarity what victory means. It means the Southern armies are smashed and the Southern government is disintegrated. Right? If you're Franklin Roosevelt, you can tell the American people, victory comes when the Nazis and the Japanese and, and, and Mussolini, when they surrender, we have won the war. Right? We know when that ends. Right? But look at the kinds of wars that we've been declaring really over the course of the 20th century, you know, uh, war on poverty in the 1960s, war on drugs in the 1980s, war on terrorism in the 2000s. Right? How, do we, how do we define victory in those circumstances so that you get the, you get the expansion of the apparatus of the state, right? but with, no, with one, no prospect that it's ever going to come to an end because we don't know what victory looks like and nobody wants to define it. And then Secondly, you get this ratcheting effect that we get with each crisis since the Second World War, where we build up state power and then don't take it apart afterwards. Um, and, and so, you know, our, our rulers, as it were, have been vague and, and you've seen a lot of goalpost moving. You, you probably remember ancient history, uh, which was 15 days to flatten the curve. <laughs> Right? That's long gone. And now we're talking about right, if we save even one life or until we have a vaccine or until, until the outbreak stops. But what constitutes the end of the outbreak? Nobody wants to define that. And so here we are in this kind of interminable, this kind of interminable medical martial law. Yeah, that, that makes me wonder, do you think 
that we are supposed to expect to be governed by emergency orders and emergency rules for, I don't know, a year, two years until they can get a vaccine. Is that really, is this really right. what they're proposing? No, I mean, that's, and that's, um, that, that's a great sort of segue, thank you very much, into another <laughs> provision of the Constitution that we can talk about, which is actually in the original Constitution, the, uh, the Republican Guarantee Clause, which says that the federal government shall guarantee to the states a Republican form of government. But part and parcel of, of Republican government is the rule of law. And that means that we're governed by laws made by the people whom we have entrusted to make laws. And that is to say, our legislatures. And so given the realities of modern transportation and communication, the, the emergency period, wherein you know, governors have to, executives have to take emergency action, can and should be very short. In other words, it, it does not take long, taking our own state of Michigan, it, it does not take very long to assemble the legislature. And we did it once already on April 7th, and, and they, they voted a temporary extension of the governor's powers, which, you know, kind of puts a fig leaf of legality on, on these things. But, but that's, you know, for us, that's going to run out a week from tomorrow, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens after that. But no, this, I think that this idea that executives can govern by fiat on an indefinite basis, where the end point of that reality only is entirely at the whim of the same person who's making these decisions. And with no prospect of future accountability, uh, I, I think that that runs contrary to the idea of Republican government. I mean, even a Roman dictator during the period of the Republic, he had a fixed term, and then he was accountable to the Senate for the things that he did during those six months. Uh, and so, and there, there's no particular prospect that governors will be meaningfully called to account for the things that they have done uh, going forward. And I, I think another difference, um, I, I was thinking about this, uh, Lincoln is criticized much for his actions uh, during the Civil War, uh, spe specifically the actions he took before Congress convened in, in July. Um, and the actions he took though, if you, if you look at each action, they're all, the question is whether he had the authority or Congress had the authority, but they're all constitutional. It's just a matter of who had the authority to take them. It seems that now we have a, a system in which um, a, an executive declares emergency and they can do whatever they want. It's, they're not looking to the constitution to see what, what they're allowed to do specifically. It's just, it gives them plenary power. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And, and I think you're correct about, in, in your assessment about the actions Lincoln took in, in the spring of 1861. Right? We're talking specifically about the period between the uh, Confederate attack on Fort Sumter and the convening of Congress on July 4th, 1861. Yeah, he, he did a lot of things. Uh, but to the extent that there is an issue, it's an issue of whether or not he could do them or it had to be left to Congress. But there's no doubt that Congress could do all of the things that Lincoln did. Right. And, so, and, and uh, uh, it's also worth noting that Lincoln actually, um, he called Congress into session five months earlier than it was originally supposed to meet. It, uh, Congress in those days, they only met basically from December through March. And so if he had not called Congress into session on the 4th of July, they would not have met until the first Monday in December. So he actually shortened 
he, he cut off about two thirds of the time when he could act on his own, uh, rather than the situation we're in where, again, here in Michigan, our own governor sought at the end of her initial 28 days, a 70 day extension in, in her authority. And what that meant was she was going to govern by executive fiat out into the indefinite future. And based on what she did do uh, after April 7th, uh, it, it's apparent that she was going to, you know, she was going to run those powers right out to the very end. Uh, whatever, whatever she had, she was going to do what, whatever she thought she could do. And again, as you said, with no regard for whether or not that power existed anywhere in the government, not just in, not just in the executive branch. Yeah, this worries me because the coronavirus is a serious situation, but I think what if there are much worse situations that come out of this, the collapse of the economy, maybe even farmers collapsing, leading to food shortages, who knows? Does that just lead to, I mean, as out of control as things are now, how much more out of control do you think the government could get based on the fact that there may be worse things that could come in the future out of this? Right, no, you know, we're, we're, we're beginning to see that um, with you know, problems in the food supply chain, uh, I don't know if any of you uh, paid any attention to the, the collapse in North Texas intermediate crude prices or West Texas intermediate crude prices, uh, which are, you know, uh, uh, crude futures in Texas are now selling in the negative numbers uh, because th there's nothing, th th there's no place to put this stuff, right? The storage capacity has been, has been maxed out. And the, these, as I understand it, and, I, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, the, these uh, hydraulic fracturing operations, they have to keep pumping. If they cap them, that's it. There's no going back to them in the way that you might an ordinary straight or slant drilling operation. Uh, they, have, they have to keep cranking out oil uh, in order, to, in order to, to, keep them, to keep them functional. So, you know, there's, there's agricultural problems. There's, there's you know, fuel, fuel supply and energy problems. Uh, there, there are problems, and, and uh, the United Nations is now just beginning to acknowledge this, there's going to be huge food shortage problems in the developing and undeveloped worlds, because it, it's worth remembering that, you know, there are large portions of the world that exist on the surplus of Western production, right? That is to say, Western economic and food aid feeds millions of people around the world. Well, when, when Western economies and Western food production collapses, that means there's no surplus. And what that means is that the producing nations like our own are going to produce for home consumption first, and the people who exist on the surplus are just out of luck. And you know, the, the, the various development agencies have not done a very good job of, of preparing these undeveloped and developing nations for a life without Western aid. So, th so that it, once, once the tap is cut off, you have the possibility of massive famine in, in, in the less developed world. And so we've, we've talked about the 14th Amendment and the Republican Guarantee Clause. Uh, the other one I wanted to talk about is um, regarding states being able to form an agreement be between each other. Um, we have about two or three minutes left. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because a lot of states are talking about joining with other states in order to decide when they're going to open. And, and can you talk about the constitutionality of that? Sure. I mean, one of the, one of the main impetuses of the Constitutional Convention was, was to bind the states together in a way that uh, would, would prevent rivalry and conflict between states. The Articles of Confederation did not effectively do this. The states retained their, the states retained their, their full sovereignty. 
uh, as it were. And so uh, Article 1, Section 10 contains a, a list of restrictions on states. That is to say, there, there are expli explicit limitations on the sovereignty of states. So it's not just a matter of a vague declaration, something like the Supremacy Clause, which I think is meaningful, but what does it mean precisely? No, Article 1, Section 10, there are specific states may not do X, Y, and Z. States may not make war. States may not make treaties. One of those is states may not enter into agreements and compacts with each other without the consent of Congress. And so one of the things that you see happening right now is that various governors, and, and particularly in the Northeast and the Pacific Coast, and now it, it, this has spread to the Midwest, are looking at forming agreements, right, explicitly forming agreements on their own authority to coordinate their reopening of their various states. Now, it'll be interesting to see how all of that pans out with regard to political pressures in various states here. You're already starting to see the wheels come off of, uh, of shutdowns in, in places like South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, uh, you know, protests all over the place. But, but those, those agreements, without congressional authorization, those agreements are prima facie unconstitutional. They, they, they can't exist. States can't, states can't sort of, sort of collude in that way. And beyond that, if you look at the states in question, these are states, you know, New York, California, the Pacific Coast states, these are states which control a massive amount of our international shipping, right? Major port facilities uh, are, are sort of contained in there. And what that means is that, that state governments, by virtue of these, these agreements, are going to be able to uh, effectively control a large amount of our foreign and interstate commerce. And so you've got this related problem that the Constitution expressly grants to Congress power over foreign and interstate commerce. And, and I think what you've got here then is very strong potential for uh, collections of states usurping congressional authority over those, over those jurisdictions. Dr. Kevin Porteous, thank you so much for being part of Citizen Talk. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Citizen Talk, the show that's restoring prudence to politics. I'm Juan Davalos. And I'm Lynette Grenvig, and this is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. And you can also hear us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Just search one word, Citizen Talk. See you after the break.